Welcome back to the Ball Cities podcast, hosted by myself, Swalia, and my co-host, Monesty. Today, we're here with Kim. And Kim, if you could introduce yourself, that would be perfect. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Kimberly Arcand, and I am a visualization scientist and emerging technology scientist for NASA's Chandrix Observatory at the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard, and Smithsonian. Just <laughs> a mouthful, I know. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on today. Um, you know, you've done some really, really amazing work over the past like few decades. Um, so there's like so much to unpack today. But I actually wanted to go back um, quite a bit um, and talk about what you're working on in university. I know that you were working in the space of molecular biology and public health, and you were also teaching at the University of Rhode Island when you were hired for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory in 1998. Um, so I'm curious if you can dive a little bit deeper into how you sort of made this pivot, how you connected with NASA, um, maybe what some of the skills that you had that made you a good fit for the role that NASA was looking for, um, and also like what incentivized you to leave the space of public health and sort of go in an entirely new direction? Yeah, it's a great question because my answer is failure. Failure is what sort of led me on the path that I am now and has been a dear friend, I guess, even along that existing path. Um, and I, I say that it sounds like I'm trying to make a joke, I suppose, but it's really about this idea that I was proceeding through college. I was a first-generation college student in my family. I definitely felt a bit out of depth when I first got to college, um, felt a little overwhelmed and underprepared, um, and I was trudging through my bio classes and thought I had an idea of what I would do with my future, perhaps going to med school, perhaps being a research scientist in like a medical field and kind of thought I had things mapped out. And as I got through some of my classes, I got to a genetics class in particular, and I failed it miserably. And this was on top of other classes that I had just struggled in. And I just felt like, ah, am I spinning my wheels? Am I not really like meant to be in this direction? Am I, am I just going towards something that's not meant for me? And so that failing of that class, which I was paying for, right? I was supporting myself through college. So failing a class was very expensive mistake to me at the time. Um, and it just made me think really long and really hard about what I could actually see myself doing. I've always been a dreamer as a kid, right? Like I always just kind of had my head up in the clouds a bit. I thought, you know, I want to save the world. I want to do all these great things. Um, but that failure just led me to think a little bit more practically. Uh, and so you asked like about my skills. And I think that's an important part to pivot in this conversation away from failure, because I found that I had a more natural ability, I guess, or things just came a little easier to my brain um, in the computer science area. And I'd found that out kind of by mistake. I had been doing a, a work study program in uh, economics and my professor needed me to do some basic, very basic web programming and work in like Excel and database development, that kind of thing. Very basic. Um, but it was so like neck and second nature for me. Um, and so I kind of, after this failure in genetics thought to myself like, well, that comes so easy. Maybe I should just sort of give myself a little breathing room and explore. And so I wandered to the computer science department at my university and just kind of asked them, what did they think I could do if I was almost three quarters of the way through my major at this point and thinking of changing my, my career path, my future. And they adopted me and really like 
just helped me flourish in computer science in a way that um, was unexpected because I wasn't an officially enrolled student in their major. Um, and that kind of kindness and help to someone outside of that major is something I have never forgotten and a lesson that I have taken with me because to this day, I tend to be attracted to and hire um, people that come from very different backgrounds and that don't necessarily have that perfectly straight path. Um, I tend to admire people that have more eclectic experiences and perspectives um, because other people took that risk on me, right? I didn't have um, degrees in certain things. I didn't have official classes under my belt and people still took a risk on me. And to this day, those risks that those people took on me have paid tremendous dividends in my career. So a long answer to your question, but I, <laughs> I hope that helps. <laughs> No, that gives such a great perspective on sort of like your life journey and how you sort of start to like build foundations for the work that you do now. And I think it was like really valuable to hear how it wasn't necessarily straightforward. I think those are always the most interesting stories um, because I, most things don't always come naturally. Um, you sort of have to figure it out by doing. And I think it's always interesting to hear like what was that like experience for you that changed everything. Um, so I was like, I really liked hearing that. Um, is something else? Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna follow up on NASA's um, Chandra X-ray Observatory. So the Chandra X-ray Observatory is part of NASA's fleet of great observatories that includes the Hubble Space Telescope, the Spitzer Space Telescope, and now the deorbited Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. Chandra allows scientists from around the world to obtain X-ray images of exotic environments to help understand the structure and evolution of the universe. Can you dive deeper into how your role as a visualization scientist and the lead of emerging technology? Um, and how your role has evolved since you began in 1998, um, especially since the fields of both like data viz and astronomy have uh, evolved like immensely since that time. Yeah, yeah. So Chander is just a, a dream of a technological machine. It's a marvel still to this day, almost 25 years since it was launched because it's really hard to capture x-rays of our universe. There are less of them. The way you have to capture them is different than say optical light, for example. And so the machine that had to be built to do this work, so many inventions had to be had to happen before Chandra could happen. Um, so much investment and time and energy and just sheer brain power, creativity and ingenuity had to occur before Chandra could even be built. And so I think since since day one of being hired to work for Chandra, I had this intense awe of what this piece of equipment would need to do and how it would function. And the fact that it went off so flawlessly um, from its launch to its eventual orbit um, to executing all of its observations of these things like exploding stars, like areas around black holes, colliding galaxies, baby stars, all of these incredible things. Um, it's just been, it's been such a pleasure to witness that, that piece of equipment, uh, you know, have its day in the sun, so to speak. And when I say day in the sun, I mean, 25 years in the sun, it's like incredible. Um, Chandra is again, capturing a kind of light, very foreign to our human eyes. X-ray data looks quite different when we translate it into something we can see. Um, obviously, 
humans can't see x-ray light. So we have to capture it and then write software to be able to translate that into something that humans can see. Same thing for infrared light that the James Webb Space Telescope looks at and other kinds of light from radio telescopes and whatnot. And so as a visualization scientist, it's definitely an important part of my job to make sure that the data that that telescope is capturing and the information that those scientists are then working on and producing things for um, is then delivered to audiences in a way that makes the most sense um, for those audiences specifically. And that started out as a very detailed look at how to make the most of x-ray information. Um, they can look very esoteric and abstract. If you're looking at x-ray data for the first time, it could be looking like a blob around a galaxy, right? If you don't really know what you're looking for, or um, it can feel just a bit different than what you're used to looking at um, in optical or visible light. And so the first few years of my job was really about figuring out how best to serve that data in a way that would help people make meaning um, from all that information, all of that sciencey goodness that's captured inside of those photons, those packets of energy, which are then translated into pixels uh, for people to enjoy on their screen or in other ways. And then um, I kind of had a bit of a, a light bulb moment um, when a colleague and researcher at MIT came along with uh, a three-dimensional three model of an exploded star. And I thought, well, this, this is a new way of processing data, right? Instead of just thinking of it as a two-dimensional flat image, like something on a screen, just a projection, um, instead figuring out which of that information is moving away from you and which of it is moving towards you to be able to create a 3D model based on those observations um, was really a pivotal moment, I think, in how I thought of data visualization as a whole. And from there, that just unleashed like a, a number of projects that I wouldn't have foreseen. Um, 3D printing, extended reality, different kinds of augmented reality, virtual reality, holograms, um, and now working with sound to translate data into something you can hear. Um, but it was that very first 3D model that made me think, oh, like we could possibly 3D print this and hold this. What would that mean for somebody who is blind or low vision? What would that mean for somebody with a different learning need? And it was that that opening up of a window of just stepping back from something I had become familiar with and thinking about it from different perspectives. Um, and so, as you mentioned, it has changed. The job has changed tremendously. And the one thing I, I always advocate for in any position when it's feasible is the room um, and given intention to be able to learn. Because if you're not learning and moving, you're stagnating. And being able to like learn new technologies to adapt as visualization changes, as these new understandings um, are advanced, as these new ways of knowing, of making meaning um, move forward, being able to keep learning all of those technologies, or at least parts of them, uh, to be able to talk about it relatively confidently has been a really, really important part of my job, my team's work, and and what we all do. Um, so yeah, it's it's been super exciting to see that change happen over time. Yeah, thank you for such an in-depth answer. And I just like really value what you were saying kind of about even like your thought process around thinking about this data that again, like a lot of the work involves writing software to process this data, which I want to like ask more questions about later as well. But I think what you mentioned about sort of you serving the data rather than the data serving you like really stuck out to me because I think that like 
just thinking about it in that way sort of I think caters to what the data set, you know, the story that it's trying to tell you rather than sort of trying to formulate the data set and make it fit into patterns that it doesn't organically. Um, And so I just think that's like a really, really interesting perspective. Um, And I want to break that down a little bit as well. But um, I think you also talked about um, sort of a big project you worked on, which was creating the first ever 3D print of an exploded star, which you put into a VR application. Um, And I know that you, you know, in a previous article, you've mentioned that the first time you walked inside the same data set you'd been staring at for 20 years, you were fascinated by things that you you never noticed. Um, and so I'm curious if you can speak more to this experience and the power of being able to look at something in three dimensions and be immersed in sort of data in a way that we've never been immersed in before. And I'm curious, like what I think that or like what you might think this kind of unlocks for also the pace of scientific discovery, you know, outside of um, just scientists and astronomers, like who who else can benefit from this? Because I'm sure there's so many people that can kind of benefit from this, you know, mode of sensory experience. One hundred percent, and I I love your questions because I think for me at least, and this might just be a weakness of my own character, but at least when you know your weaknesses, you can address them. And I tend to be swept up sometimes in the sheer amount of work. Right, we have this huge data archive and hundreds of scientists around the world working on all of this information and so many different audiences that we're trying to reach and, you know, engage with and just the day-to-day work that you have, the hundreds of emails and meetings and whatever else that, you know, sometimes I find I can become almost immune to the sheer amazingness of what it is we're actually doing and go on things a little bit too by rote, right? Like just getting things done. I need to get things done because I have that in my personality trait that I have to get stuff done. And so what this whole process of thinking about data differently has enabled me to do each time we find something new that works or that is at least a step of inspiration towards something else is it allows me to look at the data again. And when I say look at it, I mean like think about it, process it, try to understand it in in a different way. And that always triggers something for me that's really important because yeah, I have been in this job for 25 years, right? And I talked about stagnation earlier, That that's true for my, my personal self, right? Like it's very important for me to feel like I am moving and, doing and trying and thinking and ideating all of that and the 3d modeling and bringing stuff into virtual reality for the first time was a huge step about that because for one it enabled me to again consider a data set that i had known pretty well um, in a new way and it just makes you think about like those questions different like you know how does the star turn itself inside out? What is happening with this external area? Like what is happening down in this corner um, where there is so much iron? Like what is going on with this? And it just makes you think about the questions that your audience might have um, or your audiences, you know, might have about this, this type of information. And then of course, like as you're moving through that, you get these moments of inspiration that then 
bring you to new places, right? So when we are going through um, translating the 3D model into virtual reality for the first time, it also showed us that some of the data was almost like too rich um, to be served up in that that platform. And so we had to do a slight reduction of the data to simplify the model to be able to um, serve a better VR um, you know, piece. And, and that always teaches you something like, you know, when you have to work with your data in those ways. But for me, it's always about this idea of opening those windows again. It's about allowing you to step outside of that day-to-day and just think a little bit differently, um, a little bit more in depth. Um, And then I would say also, too, when it comes to that type of work, it always makes me put myself in somebody else's shoes when I'm thinking about this data in these new ways. And I think that's one of the most important things, right? It kind of, it just kind of ignites something new that, all right, well, I could see that 3D printing, for example, would be useful um, in this way. So what would this kind of extended reality application be useful for, right? And so bringing students inside to walk inside a supernova that's exploded its guts out all over the place, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, whatever it might be, um, to be able to bring students inside to experience that in a more interactive way um, has just been really, really valuable. And I guess back to your question about what other fields can benefit from. um, The one thing I can say is that anytime we try some of these new ways of processing our data, new ways of thinking about our data, new ways of extrapolating out onto new platforms, we always learn something. Um, And we tend to be rewarded um, for doing it. And so I can definitely see how there is the potential for other fields um, in biology, in genetics, in um, definitely in medicine specifically, um, that these different kinds of data delivery platforms can benefit. And I know there's research to the effect of some of that um, using virtual reality in different ways in medicine, for example, has already proven to be um, very helpful in a number of different ways, whether it's um, patient health and recovery and like physical therapy kind of approach, um, whether it's like mental stimulation or whether it's training doctors in new ways, there are so many incredible um, pieces of research that have been done around using these types of emerging technologies to address different questions in, in medicine and other areas of science. So I think that also kind of excites me that it's not just astronomy that these things are useful for. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear about how these emerging technologies are applicable across a variety of fields. I've definitely seen like your applications in healthcare, specifically like for surgery and how it can like reduce the rate of error and like um, potentially like, again, save lives. So I think hearing about these different applications is really fascinating. Um, And I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was actually curious to hear more about um, sort of your like initiative to try and make CASA more accessible um, outside of just like data visualization for people that are also visually impaired by adding like sound and elements and colors to the model. Like I was curious, how does that sort of change experiences for people that maybe don't have like all of their senses and how does this even change like experiential like learning for example and make it more accessible to like a wider population yeah i think pretty early on in the project with the supernova and casse that we started working on in 3d i realized there was immense potential to work with new communities 
um, new communities to me, at least that I hoped um, would be able to engage with this information in a significant way. And so one of the things we did pretty early on was working with the National Federation of the Blind to work with students in their summer youth slam program to be able to understand like what they responded to in these 3D prints and what made the most sense for their learning and their interest. Um, by the time we started that program, we already had like a few different models that we had been working on different kinds of stars, different kinds of um, exploded stars, that sort of thing. And so we did this workshop um, that was very enlightening because the students had such wonderful pieces of input that were in some ways incredibly obvious, but in other ways, just very, very useful to hear directly from the community themselves, right? Like um, taking a model, cutting in half, such a simple thing. But if there's internal information and you're exploring a tactile model through touch, right, you're not seeing that there is also internal information as well. So cutting a model in half uh, allows access to the internal and external information, which has value. Such a simple thing to do, right? Like that should have been obvious, but it was not obvious because I'm not going through the world as somebody who's blind or low vision. So working with those communities and learning that lesson very early on was incredibly helpful to me that you're not making things for other communities. You're making things with other communities. And that was a very, very, very important lesson to understand um, because that really changed how we approached that type of work in the future. Um, now we bring community partners on much, much earlier in the process, um, sometimes even before things are unembargoed. Um, it's a very early part of the process because we want to make sure that input is being um, worked upon as soon as, as is possible. Um, and each step along the process, there were new technologies that would come on board, right? So 3D printing at first was very simple, one color, but then a multicolor 3D printed started coming on board and becoming a little bit more affordable. So we started working with that to be able to understand how we could assign the colors based on the chemical emissions from that object. So you could feel and see based on texture and color, uh, where the pockets of iron, the silicon, the sulfur, the calcium, what have you were in those models. I mean, the same thing when we started moving into virtual reality space, like that first immediate struggle is always adapting to a new technology. That's usually kind of like, we kind of have to sit down and like deep dive just to get something working at all at first, right? That's goal number one. How can we understand this new um, kind of software and this new kind of hardware to be able to do something? And so we find new partners to work with that have experience in that area to help us along. But at least we get that sort of proof of life, that that early concept that, all right, this could work. And then from there, it's the same thing, like stepping back. All right. What are the communities that might find this experience valuable? What can we do to make this experience more accessible? How can we bring a universal design to the universe to make sure that this is, you know, appropriate for people at all different um, entry points. And that's what starts like, all right, so then can we add sound to this virtual reality experience? Um, oh, yes, we can. Can we add haptics through um, the use of phones? Uh, for example, vibration response on, say, a smartphone when you're in a virtual reality environment? Yes, you can. Right. So how do we do these things in a way that makes sense? Um, but it really was that first lesson of the community deriving it um, that was the most important thing for me to learn in this whole process. 
Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that you touched on really, really interesting points there. I really appreciate what you're saying about sort of making sure that community members and these stakeholders are involved in all steps of the process. I think that's really important. And I think that, like you said, it kind of gives a lens into how you can sort of make not just like the end product accessible, but really make sure each step of the pipeline is sort of being like challenged or thought about in a different way um, to serve again, that population that's, you know, it's intended for. Um, And so I just like think that's like a really important point to note. So thanks for like sharing about that. That's super interesting. Um, But I also want to talk more about, um, I think you were mentioning this a little bit previously, but sort of the data synthesis, data processing and synthesis synthesizing process I guess sorry I like stuttering on that but I'm curious if you can elaborate more on this because I know that the data collected by the telescope has to be synthesized and processed to be useful for researchers Um, and I know that you're obviously processing astronomical data in astronomical amounts Um, and so I'm curious if you can sort of talk more about the process of dissecting and understanding the information collected by telescopes, um, you know, tens of thousands of miles away, and then using that data to also make valid hypotheses. And so maybe just like elaborating on what kind of data is collected and then maybe the steps of processing that it goes through. Yeah, sure. So Chandra, as I mentioned, um, is an incredible telescope collecting information about our X-ray universe. Um, that is a very different kind of light. And it's really important to have all of these different kinds of light, infrared, X-ray, radio, optical, ultraviolet, microwave, what have you, because every bit adds like another slice um, of that picture, right? Like you, you can only have a full picture of the universe we all live in by understanding all of that available information. And then there's even multi-messenger astronomy they, these days too, which is bringing data beyond just um, light into other forms as well. Um, and so Chandra goes about a third of the way to the moon and it's about the size of a school bus and it gazes out into the universe, never looks at the sun, by the way, because the sun would burn its eyes. So it gazes out into the universe and um, slowly flew through um, its view of the X-ray skies based on the targets that need to be observed. When it observes that information, the light, the photons, the packets of energy from those objects have been traveling to us. Um, for thousands, millions, or even billions of years. Um, Chandra is in an elliptical orbit about a third of the way um, to to the moon. So it has a pretty good, clear view of, of that X-ray universe. And so as that information um, is observed by Chandra, those photons are kind of skimmed down through the mirrors to the base of the telescope where they're captured um, and kind of packaged up into a digital suitcase. It's just binary code. That Digital suitcase is then transmitted back to Earth through NASA's Deep Space Network before eventually it comes to our computers uh, appear in New England um, at Chandra's Operation Control Center. And then from there, everything has to be verified, checked, make sure all of the um, data was calibrated, everything is gone, you know, checked, checked, checked again. And then the scientists get to work. So the scientists that requested that bit of information, that's the group that starts out with it. And they start by kind of uh, running that data through additional software. Maybe they need to plot the spectrum to understand the, you know, the fingerprint of that light that was captured so that they can identify the calcium, the silicon, whatever it might be that they're trying to um, understand. Um, all the additional software is used to be able to create the visual representation of that object too. There are other kinds of plots that might be necessary, light curves and the like. 
Um, but eventually that research is encapsulated into some kind of paper and some kind of scientific information that is hopefully going to be reaching out into the world. Um, it's at that point that it's really my team's, uh, you know, control um, to take that data and process it further into something that makes sense for wider audiences. Sometimes that is just an image and that image then feeds back into the scientific enterprise. Sometimes that is something like a three-dimensional model, um, which again, feeds back into the scientific enterprise, but then also goes out um, in a myriad of ways to different communities. Um, sometimes we might take that image that was created and extrapolate it out into sound. And so each of those steps, right, what happens is there is a scientific story. And that scientific story is driving the translation of the data. So I think you had mentioned being interested in language translations. And I feel like this whole idea of data processing from one form to another is really just language translation. That's that's all it is in some sense, right? You are taking something and perhaps, you know, if you're starting with an image, which is pretty typical, and pretty common, um, you've got these pixels that have encapsulated all of that science and goodness, all of that meaning that is inside them. The image might be beautiful, but it means something. It is um, a weather map for something. It is um, a temperature map for something. It is... Um, a collection of all of those points of light that provide some value to understanding a very interesting process um, that's out there in our universe. But you can also translate that into something else. And just like if you're translating from French to Mandarin, you can't use the exact same words because you will lose context, right? So you have to have that story drive your translation. So the scientific story remains the same, but the words you're using to represent it have to change based on who it is you're speaking to. And so if we're translating something into sound and the main point of that um, piece of data sonification is to reach people who are blind or visually impaired, for example, then you're going to work with somebody who's also blind and visually impaired to make sure that those sounds have the correct value or have the correct contextualization for them. So I think that whole process of data synthesis and extrapolation and formatting into these ways of understanding, it's it's just a layer of of translation from one form into the next. Being sure, like any good translator, of course, is is that the truth, those gold nuggets of truth, always stay the same. Those are always there in the piece, whether you're using one word or another. Um, those little golden nuggets are never left behind. I love the way you describe that as a form of language translation and just translation at different layers. I think anyway, we sort of... Um, change the way we communicate information or the way we exchange ideas can sort of be described as a form of like language translation. I think a question I think about a lot is like, is like art a form of language translation? Like what other like modes of expression can also be considered as a language, right? There's like so much to explore there. It's not just about like verbal words or written words or just symbols. So I find all of that interesting. And even if you think about symbols, like there are languages that are written as symbols, right? So why can't art also be considered as a form of language? 
Um, so yeah, there's a lot that I could explore in a different episode there. Um, but I also want to ask you, um, how does the major focus of the lab revolve around changing the way that we observe our universe? So you've given analogies to this previously, especially in your TED Talk uh, titled How to Hold a Dead Star in Your Hand, which is a very interesting title, by the way. Um, but how do we design hardware and tools to better understand and synthesize our observable universe when we don't know what we're looking for? Yeah, and, and that is such an excellent question because it's really hard to do that, right? Uh, so just keeping Chandra as the example, because that's the one that I know. Um, it was really hard to build Chandra because so many things had to be invented along the way to be able to capture data of a different kind of light than our eyes can see is already challenging to be able to capture data that is extreme. Um, one of the most extreme forms as x-rays are so energetic or so hot um, was yet another challenge to be able to do that um, with mirrors that had to be so finely polished that you'd have to like, if you're familiar with Colorado, you'd have to take Pike's Peak and smooth it down to like maybe an inch tall. Um, right. Like that's how much attention to technical detail had to happen when building this spacecraft. And then of course it had to um, operate in space in this cold, harsh environment after withstanding the rigor of a very energetic launch. Right. And so I don't know that I can answer like how we do these things, except that it's one step at a time. And it is very much with the most collaborative teams because none of this is a me story. It's all a we story. And the idea of like the lone brilliant scientist sitting in his room with the light bulb going off, right. Kind of drives me a bit wild because I mean, there might be moments, of course, where anybody is having a light bulb moment, sure. For the most part, um, the scientific enterprise works best when it is an exchange of ideas and an exchange of knowledge and a real like transformation of our understanding just one step at a time. And so, again, as I mentioned, for Chandra to have to happen, so many different brilliant people and hardworking folks had to just give their all with their creativity, their ingenuity to think outside the box, to figure out, all right, well, we can't do this. Let's try this. We can't do this. Let's try that. Uh, we've got this new constraint on us. Let's with it. Let's swivel around to this, right? Like all of these different challenges. Um, it, it really is an amazing team effort. So I guess at the end of the day, that, that would have to be my answer that we, we do these hard things because we're part of a greater exchange of ideas. We do these hard things for the greater good of understanding for the planet as a whole. You know, we do these things as just an important part of humanity's desire to constantly push out to, in astronomy's case, those classic questions of where do we come from and where are we going? And the fun thing about all of this and I apologize if I'm digressing too much, but the fun thing about this is when we do those hard things, we are often rewarded back here on earth, right? Like there's not a day in my life where I am not affected in some small way by technology that was invented 
um, for part of an X-ray telescope, whether I am getting on a plane um, that has been evaluated for weaknesses through X-ray technology, whether my luggage is being scanned um, through similar X-ray technology, whether I'm getting a mammogram and that's been made safer and more effective through literally the telescope I work for, um, whether I'm getting an MRI, whether I'm at the grocery store and, or the pharmacy and um, some of that food or medication has been quality controlled because of similar x-ray technology. There are so many steps in my daily life that are affected by quite literally the very telescope that I work for and its predecessors. Um, and that that goes the same for all of us here on this on this podcast, right? Um and so it's like we're we're rewarded again for doing hard things because when you try to do those really impossible things, you have to push yourself so much that you never quite know what is going to result from that difficult work, what will result from that really hard labor. And the fact that medicine has been improved because of our desire to understand the X-ray universe is just something that I absolutely adore about this type of work, that it can have such far-reaching things. And I think I love that in general for science and engineering and technology. You never quite know the benefits that will happen when you try to do something really challenging and for a greater good. Sorry if I digress too much. Did I take that off on a tangent? <laughs> no, that was such a <laughs> wonderful answer. I, <laughs> I love that so much. I think that you really touched on sort of the mission of Chandra, the way that you know, the people, the teams at the observatory are thinking. Um, and just like even what you're saying, like it's not a me story, it's a we story. And just the way that you phrase that. And, you know, even at the end, what you're saying about the countless number of things that have been impacted, you know, by telescopes, by Chandra, by sort of X-ray technology telescopes, NASA in general is like astounding. I know there's like a simulation that a lot of people might have interacted with. I know it's like a NASA simulation where it's like, I don't know. I think it's something like you're walking around your room and you're clicking on different objects like in the simulations, like how NASA kind of played a role in the development and commercialization of that. So I remember that simulation, found it really interesting. I like what you're saying at the end really like reminded me of that, too. Um, but I wanted to transition for sake of time also into a lot of the other work that you've done. I know that you've um, worked on a lot of different exhibitions. You've written you know, several books. So I want to dive deeper into all of that. Um, I wanted to, you know, talk about how you served at the, as the principal in investigator and co-chair for the From Earth to the Universe exhibit um, that occurred in a thousand locations across 70 countries and in 40 languages from 2009 to 2011. And I know that this project looked at variations in the presentation of color and scale in astronomical images. Um, just like the scale of this exhibition is astounding to me. So I'm curious if you can dive deeper into the design of this exhibition, how it became an international phenomenon, and what about the design and display of this exhibit made it ex accessible in so many different locations, countries, and languages? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. It's so nice to talk about. I don't get to talk about that project as often, and I really, I kind of do enjoy it. Um, yeah, so when I was little, I think I mentioned I was a bit of a dreamer, but I also had this complex of like, I want to save the world. Like, I just have always had this idea that I would like to be very outward facing, though my day to day work is on a computer. Um, there is this part of me that wants that work to have a broader appeal. And I have a strong, strong desire to make sure I'm not the only person playing in a pool 
right? Like I get to, you know, float in this beautiful pool of a universe every day. I, I get to look at astounding things and learn something new pretty much every day. I don't want to be the only person swimming in that pool. I want to have other like people around me that get to enjoy that as well. And so pretty much the pool size to me is like the earth. I want to feel like that as much of the earth um, population as possible has access to this information, whether they want to play in the pool is totally up to them, but they should be able to access that information. Like I do, that is kind of like a driving force um, in my work. And so with from earth to the universe project, there was this very specific opportunity because um, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, and the United Nations were partnering together to have this um, International Year of Astronomy. And because it had that word right in its title, international, I was like, well, this is an amazing opportunity to take this different space data and bring it into new locations, new forms. Uh, again, just another way of knowing um, and so my dear colleague, Megan Watsky and I had had kind of been fans about um, an artist's work, Jan Arthus Bertrand, I believe is how you say his name. Um, he's a French photographer who took time to photograph um, pieces of our planet and put on these beautiful exhibits um, as a very pro-environmentalist, which is also very appealing to me because I'm very much tree hugger, um, I love my planet kind of person. And so... What we did is try to create a, a foundation or like the architecture of a building to make it as easy as possible for other people to take the, a package of information and bring it to their location based on their languages, their community's needs and their funding levels or whatever. So it was just trying to do as much legwork as possible to make it as easy as possible for people to be able to host an exhibit in their own backyards. And so we curated uh, like an exhibit, if you will, that it sounds so simple in, in some ways, but we just curated the content um, free. Everything was free, easy to use, short captions that could be understandable, beautiful imagery that told a story about the universe that we all live in. And, you know, equal opportunity to different kinds of light, um, different ways of processing those, those data were all considered and how it was presented. And then we had people who volunteered to translate it into many, many languages. I think at the end, it was 35 languages we ended up with. And we offer that as a package. So we, we did as much of um, the organizational work as we could. We wrote suggestions for text on how to advertise and... Um, suggestions for text on what to use if you were looking around for funding and example images to bring. And people really responded to the fact that a lot of that legwork had already been done. And we had obviously fantastic support from all our colleagues across the IAU and across um, UNESCO's, um, the UN's Education, Science and Cultural um, Organization group um, to support how to get that into everybody's hands. And People responded really well. We had um, a woman in Iran that printed them off on her own computer and hung them up on a fence and had these beautiful um, community moments um, with these images that were just absolutely wonderful. And then there was a group in Russia that had an art gallery space free. And so they printed some and hung them in the art gallery and engaged with a different group 
And there was um, a cafe in New Zealand and a prison in Spain and uh, a community center in Central America and all of these different locations knew best what their own local community needed as far as where to host it, uh, whether it was in a town square, whether it was at a school, uh, whether it was at um, a train station, someone had put it on the side of a train itself. Uh, it was just incredible. And everybody had the creativity and the drive to bring a part of their universe to their fellow community members and it created a very, very magical moment to me. Um, I've, I've never experienced anything like that before and probably won't again. Um, that just the sheer size of how that project took off really, really warmed my heart. Yeah, that was so beautiful to hear about. Like, I love, like, how widespread it became, like, accessible to people in, like, all types of circumstances in a way. Um, but I also want to transition to some of your other work as well. I know your talk at South by Southwest was called NASA's Sounds from a Black Hole, where you dove deep into the mechanics of what we know about black holes, a very mysterious and seemingly uh, unknowable phenomenon. I know they've always been like references, I think that exist, but I never really know like what their purpose is, like why they exist. There's a lot definitely to learn just about black holes themselves but as we pioneer through the next phase of black hole exploration in the next few decades there are a lot of innovative ways we can sort of start to understand them and explore them um can you elaborate more on how sensory processes especially sound and other immersive experiences can not only provide insight for a wider demographic to understand black holes but uh how that might be a critical metric to better understand them from a research perspective yeah black holes are incredibly interesting objects i mean what a way to spark an imagination than to talk about a black hole. It's just seemingly so bizarre and also powerful and also scary and also weird, right? Like they're just very strange objects um, where the gravitational pull is so strong that nothing can escape it, not even light, right? So how do you even know about something you can't see? Um, and that, I think, is, again, something where the the scientific community has really excelled at chipping away um, at the block of some of those mysteries bit by bit over time. Um, and the, the sonification that you referred to on the specific black hole that we talked about at South by Southwest is the Perseus uh, supermassive black hole at the cluster, the center of that cluster of galaxies. And it's an interesting example to talk about because it is a very powerful black hole who is like burping out into all of this hot gas around it. And that's causing literal pressure waves. Um, the original scientists on this paper back in 2003, it's one of my favorite stories that I think we've ever done as part of Chandra. Um, and the original scientist had actually calculated that that uh pressure wave, which is a sound wave, which they're able to capture through special processing um, of their data. So you can see the actual um, uh, sound waves in the image, which is again, very unusual. They calculated that that sound was a B flat about 57 octaves below middle C. And so Perseus is not the only supermassive black hole out there that can sing. And I, I kind of love this idea that there are 
opera singers throughout our universe, you know, belting out this really rich, rich bass um, sound that is so low that humans could never hear it so far away that humans can never hear it and not enough space in between us. So humans can never hear it. But with modern technology and again, really, you know, creative individuals on a team, we can take that sound wave and that pitch that was identified and bring it back up into human hearing. And so that, that data sonification, that translation of the image into sound went very viral because I think it was something that seemed so very true to the object itself. If you hear it, it sounds very weird and creepy. Um, some people likened it to like a horror movie soundtrack. Um, other people likened it to something like Hans Zimmer might compose, right? Um, and it has a very different power um, than just looking at an image when you can hear something. And so, again, I think whenever you can step back from your data and think of other ways to be able to process it, other ways to be able to understand it, you, you are really offering something new and potentially interesting to the world, to different communities um, and whatnot. So that, that one is special. And I think in general, black holes, there's such, there's so much that we don't know. I mean, there's so much that we don't know about the universe in general. With astronomy, one of the things is I think you have to have a humble mind because you know so very little. Anytime you answer a question, you get like 10 new questions popped up in its place, right? Like it, it is a forever humbling thing. I know so very little um, of what is available out there in the universe. And I'm totally comfortable knowing that I know very little. I don't mind feeling a bit ignorant and dumb. I find that exciting, right? And so black holes particularly are so very fascinating and yet challenging to be able to understand that like there, there's just fodder there for years and years and years of research to be able to understand what's happening. But I guess back to your point on this other way of knowing, I do feel like in the future, if I could look down the road, maybe 10 or 20 years, there could be scientists working in different labs throughout the planet that have, as part of the early processes of their data you know, processing and representation are working in a virtual reality space in real time with other colleagues across completely different time zones, being able to interact with their data, being able to turn on the sound for something like a variable star, being able to hear that data is really valuable to that scientific research, right? So how are these ways that we're processing data now, how can they all be concatenated together into an experience for the researcher and also for the non-expert, right? What part of the pipeline, how quickly can they be introduced in that data processing pipeline as a better way of understanding the data to start with? And then also as another way of understanding the data on the other side of that data pipeline. So I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but that's kind of how I'm seeing things coming down um, the pike, so to speak. Yeah, it's such a wonderful answer. I love how you touched on sort of like the idea of just opera singers in our universe like that I think as a musician that like makes my heart happy um and just like what you were saying about again like culminating all of these sensory processes into one sort of holistic cohesive experiences just such a beautiful thought for all of the different players involved um really quickly I wanted to check if you're able to go a few minutes over so you can ask one or two more questions yeah sure perfect okay 
Um, really quickly, like wanted to ask about sort of black hole research and like the state of black hole research. It's something I'm not super familiar with, but um, I'm curious, like what are some of the major players that are conducting black hole research? It seems like a lot of it is being done by, you know, NASA, other governmental organizations, um, kind of similar to space technology and space sort of flight before the rise of private companies um, have sort of also been more commercial players in this field. Um, so I'm curious, like if this is a pattern that you think maybe um, black hole research and exploration will also emulate, like, is an area that could ever be commercialized in any way? Hmm. Oh, that's such an interesting question. And I, I don't know that I can answer it per se, but I can say that there is a ton of potential in black hole research because they are so very interesting and scientifically valuable that, again, whenever we push ourselves to do really difficult things, cool results tend to happen especially when we keep in mind that it's for the greater good. Um, so I, I think this idea of, you know, black hole research right now, like so Chanda, for example, is considered a black hole hunter. Um, for the past almost 25 years, Chanda has been able to um, uh, find and understand and help elucidate other types of knowledge about black holes that's just incredible um that black holes for example can be quite green um that they are kind of responsible for the care and feeding of their galaxy as supermassive black holes um they can be the beating heart of their galaxies making sure the pond waters aren't stagnated for example um there's there's so many different aspects to to black hole research that touch on many different things not just the lives of stars but also the lives of galaxies depending on like the size of the black hole that you're talking about and chander is just one tool among many i know i've talked a bit today about the different kinds of light that we need to be able to understand different objects in the universe and black holes are a perfect example um, because on opposite sides of the spectrum radiation data of black hole is really critical. So the Event Horizon Telescope has been an immensely powerful tool to be built to understand black holes in a completely different way um, than Chander does. And they work together very symbiotically, right? That is, I think, one of the benefit of having different kinds of tools in your tool belt. Um, you can use the right tool for the job, but then at the end of the day, your project is better for it um, when you're using multiple tools to get something done, when you're using the right tool for the right parts of each job, right? And so having other telescopes like the Event Horizon Telescope, um, like the James Webb Telescope will surely show to be as well, um, other, you know, high energy telescopes that will hopefully be coming online in in future decades other telescopes period um other ways of knowing too through gravitational waves um that kind of work is really important um multi-messenger study of these objects is particularly important and so i can't say whether there will be any move towards privatization perhaps um, it is expensive it is hard to do this kind of work but presumably, humans are very clever. Humans can be very creative. And creativity is a very necessary part of the scientific enterprise, the artistic enterprise, the enterprise of the planet, period. Um, and so I'm sure people will come along at some point and be able to craft some plan or, you know, create something new that does make sense for the, the private sector to become involved in. What that looks like, I'm not sure, um, but people are much more creative than I. <laughs> so I can absolutely imagine something in the future. I just don't know exactly what yet. <laughs> 
Yeah, I find that so exciting. Just like a new frontier of like research on black holes. There's so much to, to learn there. Um, but I was also curious so about, much. yeah, I was also curious about your like body of work when it comes to writing. I know you've written um, a couple of like nonfiction books, um, including Your Ticket to the Universe, A Guide to Exploring the Cosmos, Like the Visible Spectrum and Beyond, uh, Coloring the Universe, An Insider's Guide to Making Spectacular Images of Space. And you've also written some children's books, which includes the alien that helped me with my homework and good night excellent so very different in terms of like topics but I love that it is again diverse but actually the book I wanted to focus on for this question um was diving into uh one of your most recent books which is stars in your hand a guide to 3d printing the cosmos which is published with uh MIT press in 2022 uh this book mostly just outlines 3d technology describes some amazing discoveries in astronomy um so I was curious to hear you uh walk us through how this book came about and what some of the key lessons in this book were yeah, so I, I write most of my books with my science bestie, Megan, who I think I mentioned earlier in this conversation, and we're both very curious people. Um, I will say on my own side, I get bored very easily, and I'm always needing something new to kind of jolt me with a bit of energy. Um, my PhD research was on 3D modeling and 3D printing and extended reality and that kind of thing. Um, and so it, it did seem like a natural step to create a book, at least related to that topic, since that's an area that I guess I'm an expert in. Um, and so Megan and I worked to create something that would have broader appeal than an academic tome, perhaps, um, because we wanted to take people, researchers have been working so hard um, to take their data, which from Earth seems so two-dimensional because we're here on Earth and the universe is out there like a great giant TV screen in the sky, right? And to take that data and to extrapolate out the X, Y, and Z is really important. Um, it's important for the science. And it's also important for how people can understand and learn about astronomy too. So to me, it's important on both sides. And we had so many colleagues that had done such cool models that it just seems an easy next step to be able to bring that into the hands of people, particularly um, like I know a lot of libraries that have 3D printers and community centers, maker spaces. And it seemed like this could be a book that would be helpful to bring fresh content to those places. Um, I'd say more than half of the models that we selected and highlighted or talked about in the book are models that were created for specifically science purposes. And then the other, maybe slightly less than half um, of those models were created specifically for accessibility purposes. And I love the marriage um, of those two aspects into a very short, easy to read book um, that would hopefully get people excited to think about data differently, think about the universe differently. Hold a dead star in your hand. What's there to lose? It's not a real star, so you won't get burnt. <laughs> but um, it's just a little star in plastic that's like, you know, the real stars that we're talking about with some of these objects, like Caspia A, it's like um, 40 million trillion times the surface area of our sun. So the scales are ginormous. Um, but if you can even hold even a teeny tiny version in your hand and just understand something a little bit in a new way, why not? Well, I love that. I love how it connects to like your earlier work too. I feel like this was like a very like full circle moment going back to again, sort of the work you were talking about at the beginning of the episode. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for sitting down with us today for our episode. I really enjoyed this. Um, I love astronomy, but I'm more of a fan rather than like an expert. But in another life, I really think I would have majored in astronomy. So I thought this episode was really cool. <laughs> 
Oh, I love that. Thank you for having me. And I hope I didn't talk too much. I feel like I gave some no, long-winded answers. No, it was perfect. <laughs> we right, love great. long-winded answers. It's our favorite thing right. on this podcast when people give long answers. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I learned so much. I had a great time. So thank you. I'm so glad. I enjoyed myself as well. I always get a bit energized when people ask me questions because, again, you learn something new from even the questions. So thanks yeah. for having me today.